one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Pros. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Pros is made for people not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I use the review and refine feature, and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Chapter 12, The Mirror of Erised. Christmas was coming. One morning in mid-December, Hogwarts woke to find itself covered in several feet of snow. The lake froze solid, and the Weasley twins were punished for bewitching several snowballs so that they followed Quirrell around, bouncing off the back of his turban. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So Matt, just one quick announcement before we get started today, which is that on air, our third season of Hot and Bothered is out now. There are a couple of episodes out now. As I'm sure many of you know better than you would like to, this whole Harry Potter and the Sacred Text project started with me treating Jane Eyre as a sacred text. And this podcast is my friend Lauren Sandler and I walking through the book with the question on our minds and on our hearts of should this book have the pride of place that it does in our lives? And so we're really asking some like deep existential questions about canon and what lessons you pull from a text and all in conversation with Jane Eyre. So if you've never read Jane Eyre, if you love Jane Eyre, honestly, if you hate Jane Eyre, (laughs) I think that no matter what, this podcast will give you fodder to back up your current approach and opinion. Ignorance will not be what you leave with, but hate and love, probably. Vanessa, as you know, I have never read Jane Eyre, but I am so excited to be reading along with you and Lauren this summer. Vanessa, you have our story for this week. It's all about wisdom. I can't wait for you to share the wisdom of your story with me and all of our (laughs) listeners. So Matt, this is going to shock you, but I'm going to talk 
about Stephanie Paulsell. A wiser person there has never been. There really hasn't. But there was a moment where I really questioned her. So it was our senior paper, like, orientation meeting. So everybody, in order to complete their Master's of Divinity at our school, had to complete a thesis. And there are all sorts of, like, specific rules around this thesis and which class you had to take in order to do it and which professors you got partnered with and what your timeline was going to be. And so Stephanie hosted a meeting for all MDiv students. And there were several options for the meeting so you could make it work for your schedule, where she walked everybody through the process of doing this paper. Well, somebody did my biggest pet peeve in the classroom, maybe. I have a lot of classroom pet peeves, but a pet peeve of mine in the classroom, which is they arrived 20 minutes late to the meeting and then asked questions, which you shouldn't be allowed to ask questions if you were late because you never know if the questions had already been answered and you just missed them. But this was extra annoying because they had all been answered. And not only had they all been answered, but the answers were also on the sheet of paper that Stephanie had handed out to everyone when they walked in, including this late person. And I was like, you are wasting my time and you're wasting it. It felt like by a multiple of three because of the missed opportunities. I, I was just seething with anger. And every time this person asked a question, Stephanie, the wisest woman I know, would say, that's a great question and answer with like compassion and kindness and as if she hadn't answered the question and thought to put it on the piece of paper. I was just sitting there thinking like, Stephanie, no, just tell them it's on the sheet. Like, why are you being like this? And so I teased Stephanie about this a couple of years later when I grew the courage to actually tease Stephanie. And she was like, oh, but Vanessa, you never know why someone was late. And you never know if there's someone else in the room who might want to hear the answer a second time. I think it's really important to be extra kind when someone is late. And that's something that really stuck with me. And it's changed the way that I behave when someone is late sometimes where I'm like, no, no, I feel bad for you that you're late because I know you feel bad for being late and like, please don't worry about it. But also it just made me realize that wisdom, you can default to compassion as wise almost every time. And I know it's not a one-to-one correlation, right? Because we talk about people being like, I don't know, to use like guys and dolls (laughs) language, like streetwise, right? And like, There are all sorts of ways to be wise, but I'm interested about this idea of compassion as wisdom. I I sometimes think that being overly compassionate, like I thought about Stephanie in that moment, like made you the sucker, like made you the person who was repeating yourself a million times. But actually, I think that there might be great strength and wisdom in that. Vanessa, I'm really grateful for the story because, you know, I selected wisdom as a theme for this week just kind of on a whim because it was on my mind, not because the last chapter brought it up for me. And so I was really kind of searching for it and listening for it in this chapter. And the thing that emerged for me, I think, in reading The Mirror, Aries said, around the theme of wisdom was this idea that wisdom is a moral category, not an intellectual category. I mean, I tend to think about wisdom as sort of like, oh, it's what you know. And But wisdom is it's not just about what you know. It's about how you use what you know. It's about how you deploy and how you use that knowledge and how you frame the knowledge that you have. And this is what what Stephanie was doing in these situations. What she knows is that a person walked in late. 
But she knows what she doesn't know, which is why they walked in light and what else is going on in their life. And that knowledge, framing the knowledge she has and responding with kindness, responding with compassion is the wiser approach. And so I think I think that intuition of yours and the story is actually really perfect because it it really kind of sets up this idea that wisdom is about care. Wisdom is about how you care for yourself, how you care about others, and how you use what you know to try to advance the, the care of yourself and others. But isn't it so annoying when someone comes in late and then asks questions that have already been answered? I, I have never found that super annoying. I know that you find it super annoying. You have a lot of strong opinions as a student in a classroom is one thing that I've... You are easily irritated by your classmates. Yes, Matt. I found a lot of things annoying in my classmates because I wanted them to be quiet because you were sharing wisdom. I was like, shh, we're paying Matt to talk, not you. <laughs> That's good. That's how I felt. Okay, 30 seconds of just Matt talking. You're welcome, everyone. No one will interrupt him. On your mark, get set, go. So it's Christmas, and uh, they are looking for who, for Nicholas Flamel. Who is Nicholas Flamel? They go to the library in the restricted section, but they get kicked out of the restricted section. Restricted section. And then they uh, and then it is Christmas, and there are some Christmas presents. And uh, Harry gets a sweater, and he gets uh, something from Hagrid, uh, which I can't remember. And he gets 50 cents or pence or whatever. And then he gets an invisibility cloak, and then he, he sneaks off. Uh, has a big feast, sneaks off to the library, but then the book screams, and he goes and sees the mirror. And he goes back a, a couple of times, and then Dumbledore says, don't trust this mirror, Harry. I don't remember what Hagrid gave him. Oh, he gave him the flute. He whittles a flute. That's right. He whittles That's right. a flute. It was flute. the flute. And it sounded like an owl, which I feel like is the perfect thing for a flute to sound like if you're at Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. Vanessa, are you ready for your 30-second recap? I'm ready. I'll count you in. Three, two, one, go. So Fred and George are like, everybody should wear the sweater. It's Christmas and mom made us all these sweaters. And look, Harry, they made you the, she made you the nicest one. She's so smart. And Percy, you're going to wear your sweater. And Ron, you're going to wear your sweater. But they're also like throwing snowballs at Coral, which I feel like is not a great move. Um, Ron is super sweet. And he's like, I'm so happy for you that you got an invisibility cloak. I want to go meet your parents. Let's go to the mirror. And then he's like, whoa, I am king of Hogwarts. It's amazing. And then Dumbledore is like, all I really want in the world is some good socks. And I'm like, relatable. That was nice. I like it. Thank you. You did such a good job. I just had to fill in some details. I thought you did a a better job, but that's okay. We're a team. I'm told every week we're a team. I can say that I am losing my anxiety around the 30-second recap. I didn't think about my 30-second recap before 6 a.m. this morning. (laughs) So (laughs) that's, we've moved an hour later into the morning. I know. I'm growing. So Matt, I want to start like really at the beginning of the chapter, which is that Fred and George are throwing snowballs at the back of Coral's turban. There's something about this to me that reads somewhat like a hate crime, right? Somebody is wearing a piece of headwear that is ascribed to religions that are foreign to England. And these like white British kids are throwing snowballs at it. However, it turns out, right, we end up knowing that it's Voldemort's head that they are throwing snowballs at. And so I'm wondering if you can help me figure out if there's something intuitive about this and if intuition is sometimes wisdom, we just, we don't see Fred and George bully a lot. Am I just looking for a way to excuse what looks like a very racist act by being like, no, 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 the boys can intuit that Voldemort is under there? Or should we read this just as like a really hateful thing that the twins are up to? Well, I see. I think this is this is something we've been talking about with Quirrell and his turban since he was introduced as a character for us. And it's one of the reasons why we need to have this really critical reading, right? Because 
in this text, there's a certain kind of sort of weakness or inefficacy, which is embodied in this character. And it's also a character who, too, wears a, a turban. But this is the problem. Like, Fred and George, to me, it seems like they're targeting weakness, right? And the fact that weakness is associated in the text with Eastern or Near Eastern or Middle Eastern dress, right? That's the problem, right? I, I don't want to fault Fred and George yet for being anything other than kind of their typical disrespectful selves. I want to fault Rowling for putting a reader in a situation where all, all we can do is align a certain sort of, like, weakness, inefficacy, vulnerability to children to a particular kind of culturally significant clothing. So that's not really an answer to your question. That's a, that's a response just about, like, what bothers me about Quirrell's representation that really does, like, make it difficult to start asking the question, what is the relationship between intuition and wisdom? Because what are the twins intuiting here? Are they intuiting that he is weak? Because then they're wrong, because actually that's all a show, right? That We learn by the end of this book that Coral is not weak and scared. Are they intuiting that he is Eastern or that he's non-Western, non-English? Maybe, but that's hard for us to read because he could also be a, an English person wearing a turban. We don't know that from the text. It's, it's really hard to read that. And it becomes really complicated because we have to ask the question, what is intuition? Where does it come from? People who are racist, either consciously or unconsciously, have intuitions about others that are racist intuitions. And I don't want to just kind of ally those intuitions with wisdom without really digging into where our in intuitions come from and how much we should trust them. Right. I think one of the things that we teach kids, though, is to trust their intuition, especially right when, I mean, we were in a situation where with my younger stepdaughter, this guy wanted to hug her and it wasn't a guy we knew. It was like a friend of a friend of a friend. And he had he had, had quite a bit to drink and she did not want to hug him. Right. And I validated that. I was just like, sorry, she doesn't want to hug you. <laughs> right. Like she just sort of looked at me. She didn't say I don't want to hug you. But I was like, nope. And so there are certain kinds of intuition that we want to, like, teach children and people in general to, like, really trust. Like, if you don't want someone to touch you, you for no reason, other than the fact that you don't want them to touch you, that is enough of a reason, right? But then there are other t intuitions that we want people to be questioning. And is it just you know it by its fruits? Like, you know, if it's an intuition for hurting someone, you shouldn't do it? Well, maybe, I mean, maybe this is a different way to think about the definition I gave in response to your story, that that wisdom is about how we frame knowledge. Like, does our knowledge come from what we read in a book? Does it come from an intuition we have? Like, maybe intuitive knowledge, like any other kind of knowledge, is knowledge that has to be framed and used wisely, has to be used carefully and for the care of yourself and others. And I feel like one thing we know in the case of Fred and George is their primary motivation here is not care for themselves and others. <laughs> Maybe they care to make the other Hogwarts students laugh because they're pelting Coral with snowballs. But if wisdom is related to compassion in some way, it would be hard to read an uncompassionate act as wise. And so like whatever their intuition is or wherever their intuition comes from, even if by coincidence it ends up being like the right intuition at the end that they should have been suspicious of Coral, I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't know. Yeah. I do think that they shine in their wisdom around the sweaters, though, especially this moment with Percy. They tease Percy a lot and they beat up on Percy a lot. And I think that Fred and George, 
Like some of the blame can be laid at their feet for Percy storming out of the house and out of the Weasleys' lives. I think later they can be quite bullying to him. But in this moment, I just think it's so sweet. You're not sitting with the prefects. You're sitting with us. Christmas is a day for family. And like put on your sweater. Look, P is for prefect. Wear your sweater, right? And they're so good at making Harry immediately a part of the family and being like, oh, great. And yours is even the best one. I feel like them using their jokiness for good and the wisdom in that also shines in this chapter. And it's just interesting to see sort of both the good sides and the bad sides of their humor in one chapter. I mean, absolutely. I think that what they're always trying to remind Percy of is that you are one of us. You're part of our family. That's actually your first loyalty. That's who you are. We know who you are, whoever you work for, whatever titles you get at the Ministry of Magic, right? It seems to me they're giving him a hard time is always about asking him to kind of step off whatever high horse he's on and remember that you're our brother, right? And sometimes that comes across, you know, maybe in other books as as mean-spirited and cruel. But in this one, on Christmas morning, it's just about like, we're family and we're going to be family. And before and after everything else, we're family. And I, yeah, I, I agree. I think that that's a good example of the best of, of, of Fred and George. Yeah. I mean, can we keep thinking about like this relationship between between wisdom and compassion or wisdom as a moral rather than an intellectual category? Because this chapter begins with Harry, Ron, and Hermione in pursuit of knowledge. Who is Nicholas Flamel? We need to find out who Nicholas Flamel is and get this information because the information is going to give us some answer into and what to do next, right? The fact that that we're discussing wisdom this chapter and the chapter begins with this like fierce pursuit of some unknown truth, some unknown facts, that's actually what got me thinking about, like, how wise is this pursuit? What what will it take more than just knowing who Flamel is in order for them to use that knowledge well or use it wisely? Yeah, and especially because we know what Flamel's secret is, right? Like, that having the elixir of life and that the wisdom ends up being that actually Flamel is giving up that power and, like, that is the wisdom that Flamel is going to end up being emblematic of, right? That he was somebody who had immortality and let go of it. And so he undermines the thing that he is famous for in a really interesting way. I was also thinking of how interesting it is that there's like restricted wisdom, because I do think that part of wisdom has to be, yes, it's about how you use knowledge, but you like need the knowledge in order for it to like be churned into wisdom. And I understand why, right? Like, obviously, there are things that are not appropriate for children, but it's such an interesting idea to have a librarian there as sort of like a restrictor of the access to wisdom. It's like a bouncer at a library. I don't know. We didn't have a restricted section. It's just like so funny. And what it does, right, is what we know will always happen with kids is if you tell them they can't have something, it will make them do dangerous things to try to get it like go out in their invisibility cloak in the middle of the night. Yeah, I mean, there's a line you use, though, which is like that certain wisdom was restricted. I I think certain knowledge is restricted. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like the wise person would realize calling it restricted means that everyone will just want to read it, right? That's (laughs) that's understanding human behavior. You should call it the boring section of the library. That's right. Absolutely. The stuff you already know section. I think the reason the area is restricted is because the knowledge is dangerous, because they're worried that it won't be used wisely. If students, without the proper framework for using that knowledge, without the proper context for using that knowledge, get a hold of it. Let me turn back to the thing you started with saying, because I hadn't remembered or recognized how the setup in this chapter 
is sort of a Russian doll of the larger story of Nicholas Flamel, right? Like these students are interested in learning about who Flamel is, even if they don't know understand the context for it. So there's this relationship between what they know and how to use it well. And then the whole idea of having the solution to immortality is also a question of whether you have it and once you have it, using it well. And that's true of Flamel in this book, right? He has this knowledge and he recognizes or realizes that using that knowledge well will mean letting go of the Philosopher's Stone. And that's also the arc of the whole series of books, which is what will one do to attain the secret to eternal life, to immortality, and when do you give that up? That really is the issue with Voldemort, and it's also the issue with with Dumbledore, and it's also the issue with Harry. It's we learn what the answer is, and it's also understanding how to use that knowledge properly. And the really interesting thing with these books is that the, the right way to use that knowledge is never to hold on to it and keep it for yourself. It's always to give it up and allow yourself to, to die. Well, there's wisdom, to your point, in being willing to let go of your life, and then there's also... Like wisdom just in being able to let go in general, right? Which is what I think that the theme of this chapter really is, is Dumbledore at the end, this meaning-making moment of like, you have to let go of just staring at your family. You have to go live. If you spend your life obsessing over anything, right? Like they try to obsess over Nicholas Flamel and the book screams at them. Percy tries to obsess over being a prefect and Fred and George are like, nope. Like, you're still with us. And Harry is trying to obsess about his family. And Dumbledore is like, you're going to lose your whole life doing that. So I think overall, right, like the wisdom here is not to let yourself become totally absorbed in any one thing, but right, like to stay attentive to others and to yourself and sort of to live a full and dynamic life. That's interesting, the language you use, Vanessa, of letting go, that being willing to let go of one's attachments or whatever is the wisdom because there's something that actually bothers me. I really like Dumbledore, even though he's a flawed character in many ways. I think he's also a really loving character, though flawed, and that makes me like him a lot. But there's one line here which actually does kind of bother me when he's explaining what the mirror of Erised is to Harry. He says, the happiest person in the world would look in the mirror and only see himself. And I feel like that means that happiness is defined in this case as having all your desires satisfied. I don't know if that's what happiness is. I mean, maybe that's like contentment or satisfaction, but I think it's okay to have desires and to have wants and to, for them not to be able to be satisfied. And that, It just bothers me that he puts happiness that way because I don't think that's what happiness is. I think you can long for something and wish for something and still be happy. Being in a relationship with others means having desires and having wants, and you can only be happy if you're in a relationship with others. Oh, and right, like... I'm really happy when I'm in Massachusetts with the kids and Peter. And then I'm also really happy when I'm in California with my niece and nephews, you know, and brothers and parents. And you're always missing someone, right? You're always longing for someone. I think that that is absolutely part of being human. I guess what I'm taking from what he says, and I'm not even sure, I don't remember the exact language. So I guess this is more of a feeling than what he actually says, but the like peace with the pain, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. Like that, And that's actually how I was trying to initially describe this sense of, of letting go or of the replicating or 
recurring trope of immortality as a temptation that needs to be let go of. It is about this letting go. It is about saying, no, actually, pain is part of what it means to be in relationship with other people. And that if we run away from it, what we will do is run away from our only thing that sustains us or the thing that most sustains us, which is relationship. Because, you know, I think a, a person who's really content and happy could look in this mirror and see people they love to have died. And a person who looked in that mirror and saw no one that they loved to have died because they did not care for those lost people, like that person's not happy, that person's empty. This is the gap. The happy person is not the person who looks in the mirror and sees nothing but him or herself. It's what Dumbledore calls Harry to be, which is the person who can look in the mirror and see what's in it and feel that loss, but also stand up and step forward not be sucked into it and drawn back to it again and again and again. So you're right. It is something about peace with loss or peace with letting go, which again is maybe pointing back to this idea of wisdom as a moral rather than an intellectual category, because it's not about what you know. It's about how you use it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I used the review and refine feature, and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Can I just, like, I just want to pause for a second to say how much it crushed me this time. And I'm not sure if it's something I've realized before, but just that it's the first time Harry is seeing his mother and father. He's never seen a picture of them. And I was like, oh, my God, right? It just made Petunia and Vernon's abuse 
even more acute to me that like he's literally never seen a photo, an image of his parents. And I mean, to me, it also like just speaks to just how resilient and strong a person Harry is, because I imagine if I'd had Harry's childhood in that situation, like realizing that I was looking at my parents for the first time and they were waving at me, not to mention generations of relatives before me, like the fact that all he did was want to come back the next night. He is. He's a really, a really resilient person because he's suffered a great deal. And this is a huge, huge emotional event and shock for him in this moment before this mirror. I mean, he, he's not who I'm blessing this week, but he deserves a blessing because that's it. Terry is a remarkable boy. So Matt, there's one other like scene within a scene that I feel like we have to look at before we wrap up this conversation, which is the Snape-Ron-Draco confrontation that happens. So Malfoy is like teasing Ron, right? And like, is like, you're poor. You would, you wish you could live in like a mansion like Hagrid's hut. And then Ron lunges at Draco and Snape immediately comes to sort of, you know, yell at Ron. And Hagrid says, actually, like, Draco started it. He was egging him on. And Snape punishes Ron, but only takes five points away from Ron. And I was wondering if you saw this as compassion coming from a shared identity. I read this as, like, at the end of the day, Snape knows that Draco's privilege is so complete and so hermetically sealed from the rest of the world that Ron probably was goaded th- the same way that Snape was teased, you know, by by James and Sirius and Lupin. And it seems to me that he goes easy on Ron in this moment out of like seeing himself in Ron, even though he has to save face and still punish Ron. If you buy the premise that only five points off is actually an act of compassion, this is wisdom as compassion, right? This is Snape saying, I know what it's like to be the poor kid and have a rich kid tease you. And so I'm going to go easy on you. I think that's a very generous reading. I'm actually more persuaded of it now that you've explained it to me. But my own initial instinct was that this is like lingering pure blood supremacy. This is like, oh, you come from a pure blood family, even if you're poor. And so this is, you know, this is among us purebloods. So we're going to be judicious and sparing with our punishment, right? I actually totally buy that. Because I feel like that's in Snape. I mean, just from his our early memories between Snape and Lily, like that, this is in Snape also. And I just feel like it might just come out in versions like this. Snape is not even aware he's being more generous. But if the same thing had happened to a person who wasn't, quote unquote, pureblood, then it would have been 10 or 15 or 40 points from Gryffindor. It is interesting. He's not really awful to Ron. He's awful to Neville and Harry and Hermione. And he often skips Ron in his awfulness. And I just wonder if it's Draco and the poor jokes that, like, he and Draco are similar in a lot of ways, but not in terms of the privilege that they were born into financially and in terms of, you know, Snape doesn't seem to have had parents who— cared about him, even though we can talk about Lucius and Narcissa's parents at another time. But it was the first time that it occurred to me that Snape might see himself in Ron and that we might actually see compassion and wisdom in the way that he treats Ron 
certainly versus Neville, Hermione, and Harry. Yeah, that's right. Because because Harry and Neville are pure bloods. I mean, I think that they have other vulnerabilities that that Snape picks on, obviously. So it's a more complicated thing. But yeah, that's that's true too. I, I, I'm coming around to your reading at least being one of the factors. So Matt, we're now going to do Florilegium, where we each pick a sparklet, and we talk about it a little and put our sentences in conversation with each other. So the sentence that I picked is, Harry looked down at his feet, but they were gone. Matt, what sentence did you pick? Vanessa, my sentence is, he had a powerful kind of ache inside him, half joy, half terrible sadness. Okay, so my sentence is from, like, right after Harry opens the invisibility cloak. He's like, what is it? And Ron is like, what? I've heard of those. I can't believe you got that Lego set. I've wanted one forever. And Harry, like, throws it over his legs, and he's like, oh, my God. And his feet were gone. And that's how effective the invisibility cloak is. And that that's the context of mine. And the reason that it sparkled up at me, I think it's because I just went on my first swim of the summer. But, like, when you put your feet in water for the first time when you're really hot and just that, oh, my God. Or those moments where, like, all of a sudden everything has changed and you weren't totally expecting that everything was going to change. You know, you turn a corner on a hike and you see a clearing or an animal and you're like, what? Those moments are just so fun and so full of life to me. And Harry's still new to the magical world and he did not know when he woke up this morning that he was going to have a gift from Molly and from Hagrid and from Hermione. Uh, Hermione is just the best. And then like his feet disappear. It just seems like this Christmas of Christmases and the majesty of the world. So what about you? Where is it from and why did you pick it? So my line comes from when Harry is standing before the mirror of his head for the first time, and he has just realized that the people he sees waving at him and tearing up are his mother and father and all these generations of of ancestors surrounding them. And I like that line just because that powerful ache, which is half joy and half terrible sadness, to me is just that's the feeling. Like, that's the that's the best feeling. It's just the feeling of love. It's what comes with love. Which is also why I was concerned about Dumbledore's comments that the happiest person would see only himself. Like, I, I think about when my oldest child went to school for the first time, when I saw her little backpack walking away into that school, like, half joy, half terrible sadness and a powerful ache. But, like, I would not trade that for anything. I don't get to have that joy without also the sadness of her walking away. And that the power of that is it's so well described here. And I can really kind of empathize or sympathize with Harry in this moment because it's what love feels like. Well, great. Let's put our two sentences together. Harry looked down at his feet, but they were gone. He had a powerful ache inside him, half joy, half terrible sadness. I feel like if both my feet disappeared unexpectedly, it would be just sadness. Ache and sadness. I don't know if there'd be joy. (laughs) disappear into like a beautiful pond okay then where's the sadness I'll be at the beauty of the world oh yeah don't you just get sad at beautiful yeah, things it's very japanese that's right but i'm not japanese and i get sad at beautiful things all the time i thought you were just stereotyping me sorry <laughs> not this time okay matt do you think that it's bad that every time i see something beautiful it makes me sad 
Like, should I be attempting to rewire my brain and be like, just appreciate it? Or should I be like, it's okay that this makes you so sad? I feel like sadness is part of the appreciation of it. I mean, this is just, this is the Japanese aesthetic. So it's, it seems self-evident to me in some ways, but like beauty is passing. Beauty can't be held onto forever. It's everything we were saying before about letting go. Where it, Once you recognize a thing as beautiful, part of that recognition is that it is temporary, that it's transient. And to appreciate means to appreciate also that it is temporary. So beauty has to accompany sadness. So I, yeah, I laughed at your example of the feet going into the pond, but in a truly beautiful moment, like the person who appreciated the beauty of that pond would also have to appreciate that this was a fleeting moment and that they could not hold on to it forever. And therefore, however much joy there was, there would also have to be, have to be some sadness. Yeah, you're right. Okay, let me reverse the order of our sentences and I will read them. He had a powerful ache inside him, half joy, half terrible sadness. Harry looked down at his feet, but they were gone. I mean, as opposed to the first reading, the first pairing, which immediately lent itself to humor, which also has its own sacredness, right? But it, you know, in its plain sense, it sounded like his feet had been lost somehow, right? This is almost like, like there's a sense of like floating, like he's, he's this joy and sadness, the depth of this emotion has brought him in a different relationship with his body somehow. Which is not something I'd necessarily like. I think that we are in our bodies and we need to do a lot of work to remain in our bodies. But there, there does seem to be something about the power of this emotion is like he's floating, like he's head over heels or off his feet or something because of the depth and the power of this, of this feeling. It also just has a real dreamlike quality to it. It's like this metaphor for his, his mortality, that like he's disappearing, right? His feet are gone. You can imagine a dream in which like you're disappearing from your feet up or something. And just this half joy and half terrible sadness at leaving the world behind. I hadn't realized until this reading that book one is just a continuous celebration for Harry of the wonders of the magical world. This mirror can make him see his family and give him this like powerful ache that's half joy and half sadness and it can make his feet disappear, right? This kid is going through a lot of transitions. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Our voicemail this week is from Alana. Hi, Vanessa and Matt. My name is Ilana, and I live in Nairobi, Kenya. I really appreciated your Havruta question on whether identity is given or chosen. It's been something on my mind a lot since I recently adopted a beautiful and amazing Kenyan baby together with my husband, who is Kenyan. I'm Jewish, and Judaism is a big part of my identity and life, so it feels important to me to pass that Jewish identity on to my son. Yet it's also complicated because traditionally Judaism is passed by blood from mother to child. So if he were my son, biologically, without a question, he would be Jewish. Yet in most of the Jewish world, because he came into our family through adoption, he's not considered Jewish at all. So my question is really whether it's enough for me to be able to give him a Jewish identity by saying, you're my son, I'm Jewish, therefore you're Jewish, or if that's meaningless without an official recognition, sort of like the letter from Hogwarts, which in this case would be a religious conversion. And it also got me thinking, is it sort of equivalent to being a squib in the Harry Potter world, where you're raised by parents who give you different traditions and customs, and yet you're not able to fully claim those customs as your own without that traditional or official recognition uh, in Harry Potter world of that letter from Hogwarts. So I'd like to offer a blessing to Mrs. Fig as the main squib we get to meet in the books, especially for playing such a valuable role in the resistance, even within a community that doesn't fully appreciate her as one of their own. Thank you, and I look forward to hearing any thoughts you might have. Well, Ilana, congratulations on this new baby in your life. That is wonderful, and mazel tov. And I think that the fact that, like, Mrs. Fig is just called a squib and is sort of ostracized from Wizarding Society is, like, a horrible, horrible misfortune for her and for the Wizarding community and is just, like, an unjust societal norm, as I don't agree with Orthodox Judaism's idea that a baby has to come out of a Jewish woman's womb in order to be Jewish— If at some point your child wants to officially convert because that letter to Hogwarts feels really important to him, I have no doubt that you will do absolutely everything you can to make sure that he gets a letter to Hogwarts. And if he just like feels in his body that he is a wizard and he doesn't need the confirmation from Hogwarts and like Hogwarts' pedagogy is sort of messed up anyway, then like you're going to find a way to celebrate him and for him to celebrate you. I'll just share the story. My younger stepdaughter, we just did Seder with her for the first time. And she um, was telling us as we were setting the table that someone else in her class who was Jewish was also having Seder that night. And my stepdaughter said to her friend, oh, I'm having Seder too. I guess I'm a little Jewish. And she came up to me and said, is it okay that I said I'm a little Jewish? And I was like, yeah, you are a little Jewish. And I didn't meet her until she was four, but she's a little Jewish. She does Hanukkah and Rosh Hashanah and Shabbat sometimes and Seder. She's a little Jewish. Ilana, thanks so much for your voice memo I mean, one of the things I really appreciate about your voice memo, I appreciate several things, but you just point to the richness of identity and the complexity of it. And I think what we focused on in our Havruta was mostly about, like, how we understand and embrace identity. But, like, the other half of it is that it really is given. It's given to others and that the people who give it to us often make rules we don't have, have 
have control over about who gets to have those identities. But the beauty of it being both given and embraced is that those people, even if they define identity as one that they give, you do also always have a say in whether or not you take it up and how much ownership you have of it. So thank you so much. Congratulations on your adoption and your growing family. And thank you so much for the voicemail. Now is the time in our show when we remember all those in our community lost to COVID-19. Jerry McCaden, 73, a beloved uncle of nine and an avid reader. Ricky Lamb, 40, joyful, a friend to everyone, and full of love. Mike Mulroy, 85, a loving husband and earth advocate. Sister Michael Mary Egan, 93, a teacher and a worker for justice. George Supnat, 68, a high school caretaker, father, veteran, and friend. Ira Kanarik, 75, a father, uncle, and friend. Let light perpetual shine upon them. Vanessa, who would you like to bless this week? You know, I said I wasn't going to bless him, but I am, Ron, because I didn't get to talk about all the amazing things he does in this chapter. He is so supportive of Harry getting this invisibility cloak. These are 11-year-old kids. Harry has gotten this broom out of nowhere, and Ron is, like, so supportive about it. And now Harry gets an invisibility cloak. Harry has all this money to spend on candy, and Ron is just, like, supportive and happy for Harry and is, like, entitled to the stuff, but, like, in a really lovely way, like, oh, man, why didn't you wake me to come with you? And I just love it. I just think he has such a generous heart. And it says the word is awe, right? Like, he's just looking at it with awe and not jealousy. And, yeah, just Ron crushing it, crushing it at being a friend. What about you, Matt? Who would you like to bless? Uh, this week, I would like to bless Dumbledore. As our listeners know, Dumbledore is not perfect, and I don't even think he does everything in this chapter perfectly. I'm not sure why he doesn't sign his name to that note. I had that note, too. What the heck? Weird. Yeah, and also, like, I feel like if he had actually said, been honest about what he saw in the mirror to Harry, it might have really helped Harry feel a little bit less alone in that moment. On the other hand, there are a lot of ways a headmaster of a school could have reacted to one of their students being out after dark in an invisibility cloak looking at a mirror for the third night in a row. And Dumbledore's just willingness to understand what Harry was seeing and his willingness to just treat him with compassion and kindness and caring and also to really gently encourage him not to become too attached to what he saw in that mirror. I want to bless Dumbledore for his strengths, even if we can recognize his weaknesses. Next week, we are reading chapter 13. Nicholas Flamel, Vanessa, what theme would you like me to tell a story about next week? Matt, I would love to talk about anger. I feel like we are talking a lot about compassion and all these wonderful things that I think are great, but I'm not sure that I think everyone deserves our compassion, and I'm not sure that the best revenge is always a good life. We've been too positive, and I want us to talk about anger. 
That's great because I think that compassion can be angry and we can have compassionate anger. So this is good. I don't know why they're exclusive. So I think that we have some things to work out for next week. I can't wait to tell a story about anger. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can find listeners who are discussing the episodes in the Facebook common room. Please join one of our local groups. They're meeting in person again, and we're getting pictures, and they're so cute. And also, if you are in one of our local groups and you're back in person, send us pictures. And you can join the community of people who are supporting us on Patreon, 2,003 people strong. You can leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts and send us a voicemail with a blessing. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited by Juliana Bradley. And we're so excited to welcome our new producer, AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisao and Nick Bull. And we are distributed by ACAST. Special thanks this week go to Alana, who left us a wonderful voice memo, and congratulations on your new child. Thanks also to Molly Baxter, to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Terkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of you who sent in the names of your loved ones lost to COVID. Chapter 12, The Mirror of Erised. Christmas was coming. Sorry, let me try again. <laughs> Christmas was coming. Christmas was coming.